You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, welcome to Culture Determined. I'm your host, Arya Cohen-Wade. And my guest today uh, is Douglas Lane. Doug, welcome back. Can you please Hi. introduce yourself? Yeah, I um, have been on before. Uh, I think we talked about Kill All Normies. Yes, yeah, so I think we've been on twice before. Yeah, um, uh, and the what I am is I'm the former publishing manager for an imprint uh, out of the UK called Zero Books. It's a left-wing um, imprint. Uh, kind of, we, we did critical theory and uh, political books, and uh, uh, sometimes we even published fiction. Um, and I was hired uh, to be the publishing manager there around 2015, early 2015. I'm also a novelist and <clears throat> a podcaster. And I guess a YouTuber, it's one of those designations that I, I, I feel w- wary to embrace. And yet it's probably <laughs> how I'm mostly known. Um, yeah, I, so. I sort of feel the same way. You know, I, this is obviously we're getting off. I'm getting off topic immediately, but I see I see uh, at least Twitter has decided to call people just content creators, like like people who do Twitch streams and have like teenagers, mm-hmm. like millions of teenage fans watching them play video games and stuff. It'll mm-hmm. just, and, and this world is totally opaque to me, but I'll see it on trending topics or something. It'll be like, content creator, you know, break gazoo, you know, did XYZ and everyone's going nuts about it. So maybe we're all just content creators. Yeah, I think we are. And whether we, we write songs or, or uh, write novels or, or, you know, produce academic tomes or, you know, play video games online. We're all content creators <laughs> now. Yeah, we're just creating content for the great algorithm in the sky, uh, in the cloud. <laughs> That's yeah, our whole pretty, lives it's just content for the algorithm in the sky yeah and okay and so zero books um uh it pu- published a, a number of titles that where i've had the guest on this show and so just a couple weeks ago um i had uh, mike watson um yeah with this book the Mimi mark fisher i had ben is it burgess or burgess uh, burgess burgess Bur- yeah. burgess his book uh, canceling comedians while the world burns, or the title something yeah. like that. Yeah. And then Kill All Normies was it was a huge hit for you, and you came on and talked about that. The author Angela Nagel did right. not, for various reasons, perhaps lost at the sands of time. And <laughs> yeah, so um, and you're putting out a lot of interesting stuff that caught my eye as someone who is not within the world of leftism or socialism, or just writing about you know st- stuff going on in the current day and from an interesting angle in an interesting way. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I guess how we sort of got to know each other a little bit. And then, right. um, well then a couple months ago, uh, you got fired, ejected. There was a coup. How would you, how would you describe uh, okay. what happened? It, I, I, okay. It's a dispute. It's, it's disputed as to what happened, <clears throat> which is kind of surprising. Um, what happened was Watkins media, which is a publishing company in, in the UK purchased John Hunt, Published actually, it's Watkins Publishing purchased John Hunt Publishing, and uh, Watkins Publishing um, has a number of imprints. One of which is called Repeater, and Repeater <clears throat> was the imprint that the people who used to run Zero Books, the imprint that I worked for, found it. So, so the Repeater, as the people from Zero Books, when they left in 2014, they started Repeater at Watkins. And they wanted at that time to keep the zero books name and logo and manifesto and imprint and take it somewhere else. 
John Hunt, who owned it, didn't let them. He said, no, you can't have that. <clears throat> so they started another imprint at Watkins. And um, apparently, all this time, they've been wanting that imp- zero books back. And so when Watkins purchased John Hunt Publishing, they told uh, Dominic, who's the person who um, was managing John Hunt, um, that they wanted zero books and that I was to stop accepting new books. And my team was to stop accepting new books. Which, when I heard that, from my perspective, meant that as publishing manager, I had been let go, which was not surprising to me, actually, because I knew who they were and what they wanted. I knew that they had, would want zero books back if they ever purchased the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, you know, we want to, I want to try to give the, enough background information for people who, you know, the layperson who has no, doesn't follow uh, publishing right. trends uh, and left right. media. So like, what is zero books? Yeah, Mike. Like, what is zero books? Might be the place to start. Like, what was zero books when they ran it? What was zero yeah. books when I ran it? So, zero books was um, uh, this sort of left-leaning uh, cultural studies imprint that was started under John Hub Publishing in, I think, around two thousand nine, and it was um, uh, the one of the, one of the first books they published was a book by Mark Fisher called Capitalist Realism. It overall. Their original authors were drawn from the, uh, a group of academic bloggers. Um, th- so these would be young academics who weren't necessarily tenured, or they, or if they were, they, they were just starting out, and they weren't only publishing in stuffy journals, but they were online trying to do exciting things on blogs. So, um, and you had like Graham Harmon come out of that. You had uh, Mark Fisher come out of that. Um, another title, I don't know if, he, if, if Eugene Thacker came out of the blogging scene or not, but one of the other big successful titles that they had uh, was In the Dust of This Planet, which was a book about nihilism. And it was uh, uh, a, a kind of a, a surprise hit that it was published in early days and then a few years later became a big hit because um, it, the, the cover appeared in a music video. Hmm. <laughs> and then um and then Glenn Beck got caught wind of it and denounced it as a oh, uh, that's, that's great for, <laughs> for sale, yeah. I'm sure. Yeah. So um so, so anyway. Okay, so so it's was it always primarily like a UK sort of thing, or from the beginning it was UK because Yeah, well, well no, but Eugene Thacker's American. He works at the new school. Okay, but so John Hunt is a that is there is a person John Hunter was. And, there is. And, He's still around. He just retired. Okay, and, and, and so he is British, and yeah, the it, the company is is in the still, UK. Is in the UK. But sells and books then, in the United States as well. Yeah. Okay, and then um, it, but was the original staff mostly British? Yeah, the original People staff was British. Yeah, they were all in London, I okay. think. But but overall, for John Hunt, the the staff is like they're all freelancers and they're all working for, around the world. So in the United States and. You know, at one point in Egypt and France and just everywhere, because um, mm-hmm. it's um, you know, very low overhead, done done remotely. It's sort of a newish publishing model. It's a the the company was started out of a shack in John Hunt's backyard, originally. <laughs> like that's the mythos. Okay. And and like unlike you know like uh, the story of how Apple computers began, uh, it never really got a whole lot 
beyond that shack. I mean, <laughs> there's, a, there's an office <laughs> somewhere now. But uh-huh. um, uh, so, yeah, so that's uh, th- that's the background. The, but the, the main thing was that the the reason the old group of editors at uh, at Zero Books left John Hunt <clears throat> was because partly because of that fact of what of, of the co- whole company running on a shoestring and operating as a digital com- kind of pu- computerized mar- uh, uh, publishing effort. So there was a lot of automated systems. It was all about the back end. It was all about, you know, click this button here, make sure that this automated email goes out there, um, respond to, you know, uh, to, to this prompt here. Um, and the whole idea was to limit the amount of labor time it took to produce a book down to almost nothing, you know, as low as possible. The only okay. people who would be really touching the books and spending time on them uh, were first the, the publishing manager and readers selecting the titles, reading them and selecting which ones would be published, then the copy editors and then the production team. But the, with, with as little contact with the authors as possible was the, was John Hunt's model. Okay. And then this is for, and so I, I was, I get the like sort of the monthly catalog or email of John Hunt and a, a lot of stuff they publish was not similar to Zero Books. It was yeah, no, right. No, no like, most of it's not. Like pagan. Well, how would you books. describe a lot of the other stuff they publish? I, I would say it's a, eclectic. I think mean, I think the interest of John Hunt was leaning towards Christianity and mysticism. Maybe I'm not. I'm not exactly sure, but I yeah. Noticed... So, I mean, stuff about sort of. Well, I don't know, like New Agey, mm-hmm. or stuff about like Wiccan thought, like stuff, like just stuff yeah. that you know it seemed an odd fit with the materialist world of socialist. Politics, I thought, right, just right. as someone who yeah, came no, from the I know. Outside. It was like total opportunism on everybody's part. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like there was an existing publisher, and they had imprints, and uh, they had this model that was sort of uh, inhuman. You know, uh, focused on uh, limiting the amount of uh, human labor involved, and uh, that meant that there weren't a lot of uh, eyes on a vision for the whole thing, you know? And so when they hired someone, that person had a lot of freedom. That team had a lot of freedom. So like I had a lot of freedom when I was at zero books to try different things and direct the the imprint the way that I uh, wanted it to go. And like when I first started in zero books, I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to push my Marxist humanist line and bring my Marxist humanist buddies onto the stage. (laughs) Um, You know, so I was like a, you know, uh, infiltrating, um, but it, 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 it worked out. I mean, we, we published a, a lot of good things ourselves, um, but we started uh, kind of, kind of after the blogging scene had died out. So like the, the blog, the big bloggers had their day. And then by 2014, it was clear that Facebook and, and Twitter and, and social media, the, the what was it? Web 2.0 that had changed everything and blogging was becoming less and less viable right. as a way to, to get it, get places. And so that also meant that apart from uh, uh, the surprise hit of in the dust of this planet, I think the zero books imprint was sort of looking around as, as to how to find uh, a foothold in the attention market, you know, like on online, how to, how to make, uh, get ahead. And they had good Twitter 
account and they they had uh some things going but it was it was uh, for me anyway uh it was difficult to figure out how to uh grab everyone's attention on online and <clears throat> and also who where to look for authors mm-hmm. um so uh what i did was i tried a number of different things i i i started writing buzzfeed listicles at first and those didn't go anywhere <laughs> but but i thought you know those can go viral we'll try to see if that no no uh-huh. and then i i was already podcasting and that did okay i got you know my podcast actually declined when i took it and rebranded it as a zero books podcast but then it after a while it kind of bumped back up again but people at first didn't trust it you know oh now you're now you're corporate. We're not going to listen to you anymore. Um, but that came back. And then I did YouTube. And that, after a while, worked. And especially when I started criticizing Jordan Peterson, that worked. Then suddenly mm. people were paying attention to the channel. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's, that's funny because I, um, uh, er, you know, once blogging his videos started appearing on YouTube, the ones that mentioned Jordan Peterson, um, I guess because of the algorithm, they got more traffic, and 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 usually it'd be from a critical perspective. Although I did one with Katie Herzog that where she had she had like gone to various of his events. This is like twenty seventeen or eighteen, and wrote a you know a, a somewhat positive feature about him for for yeah. some outlet. But um, but yeah, just having his name in there, you know, there were so mm-hmm. many Jordan Peterson fans at, on YouTube that having his name in there showed that content to them, and they got mad and would be in the comments and say like you don't know yeah. what you're talking about you need to read xyz <laughs> right yeah 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 like well, our biggest video was one about slowly zizek and jordan peterson and it's like half a million views <laughs> and um and yeah so that that sort of move and it was actually done like i didn't do it for the algorithm i legitimately was fascinated by and critical of Jordan Peterson. And, yeah, I, it wasn't clear. I mean, people were, once he sort of came on the scene, I guess that was around 2017, people were definitely talking about him. But I, I, didn't, I didn't see it as like a clickbait sort of thing when I was talking about him. It just, I, I was sort of shocked that so many people were emotionally exercised by this guy. Um, yeah. And looking back <laughs> on it, 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 it seemed strange because um, I don't know, he sort of faded and become even more stranger and more of a crank. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Years. Although, don't count him out. He's, he's still out there. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I would say the other thing that worked was just making video essays online, um, where I would write an essay, narrate it, and put, put images to it. Um, those tended to do pretty well, especially after I made a few about Jordan Peterson, but even before we were growing. Um, and then through that, I kind of, uh, I, and I had, I published Kill Normies. We had, you know, several books before that, that did well enough, like, if we sold over a thousand copies, we were happy, but we had a, but then we sold Kill on Normies and that was in the tens of thousands of copies. And, um, and that got the attention of people like Michael Brooks, who came over and did some work with me. Like he was a guest several times and he wrote a book for us and <clears throat> he had people on his show from, from uh, our author list, including Ben Burgess, who he developed a really good relationship with. Um, and so around that time, Kill Normies and then Ben Burgess and Michael Brooks, it was we had found our version of the blogging sphere. It was this new media, like YouTube podcast universe for, for mm-hmm. the left that mm-hmm. we were pulling from and working with. And um and so yeah, so that's how, that's sort of how I would describe 
the difference between what's being called like zero 1.0 and zero 2.0 is, well, maybe two things. One, I was more Marxist, I think, than my predecessors. I was like, I was coming out of a, a Marxist sect, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and so that that made me. I was all trained up on you know the the, the uh, labor theory of value and and and, and you know Marxist uh, political. And, and were there, were those people more like Frankfurt School people? No, I think they were um, more like I don't know. Well, like it, 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 there wasn't any center, but like if Mark Fisher was more of a post-Marxist sort of like uh, Derridian, Zizekian, uh type, um, and and he wouldn't have been uh, quoting lines from of, from Marx directly very often. That's mm -hmm. my feeling. But but he was great writer, really good cultural critic, and and uh, you know I would not put him on my. He was a fellow traveler. It's how I would put it. <laughs> right? mm -hmm. And um, for, so, for people who didn't see this previous episode with Mike Watson, where we because he his kind of his book was the meaning of Mark Fisher. F Fisher, um, I guess. Okay, look, everyone. Fisher, Fisher died. I don't want to. That, that yeah. probably ad adds to somewhat of the uh, emotional ideas sur surrounding him or something. Like, yeah, you know, and, yeah, although he killed himself, and so it's, it's like this tragedy. And then he became much more popular after his death. You know, like, it, so yeah. It, it, I mean, so probably there are people who are like partisan, became partisans of him either before or after his death. And then that sort of became a identity in a yeah, way. Like, yeah, right. We yeah, the the other way to put it, it wouldn't wouldn't it be the meme of Mark Fisher, but the branding of Mark, Mark Fisher. And, and that's the unfortunate thing. And that will be part of the next part of our conversation. But it's not really <laughs> about Mark Fisher. Yeah. I mean, like uh, Mike Watson would claim that Fisher was influenced by the Frankfurt School. <clears throat> and I'm sure there is truth to that, because. All of critical theory comes out of the Frankfurt School, you know, and and I'm sure that Fisher read Adorno, and but but I remember reading um, Sadie Plant uh, in the '90s, who was one of Fisher's uh, colleagues and and associates in a on a little Marxisty kind of group that was I don't remember what it was called, but it had something to do with cyberpunk and changing society through acceleration and 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 it was a cool little group it was uh sadie plant mark fisher and i think a guy named nick land were all part of this little group and sadie plant wrote a book called the most radical gesture which changed my life i read it when i was like 22 years old and uh she was probably around the same age when she was writing it and um it was all about the situationist international which is this french radical group that was responsible they say for the strikes and protests and riots of may of 1968 or at least uh you know part of the part of the reason that happened and uh the theory of the situation is international as compared to postmodernism or post-structuralism and that's what the book was about so i would say mm -hmm. like that spot between marxism and post-structuralism is where in the 90s guys like fisher developed their ideas and through them actually i was the same way like until 2008 i was kind of on that same trajectory of sort of what's the difference between postmodernism and marxism i can't tell which mm -hmm. by the way goes back to jordan peterson and is something that, that would be his point but i don't i don't want to grant him too much there um yeah because he had this whole he sort of merged marxism Postmodernism, and he called it cultural Marxism. At least I think, if I'm remembering this correctly, right. he, so he was sort of lumping together all these people he didn't like, 
and saying, you know, that like the, the woke people are the same as the communists. Uh, they're all bad. Yeah. So something I mean, along those lines. yeah, something like that. Well, right. And the cultural Marxism, that's an old like John Burke society trope. And it's just another way of saying Jews. But uh, OK, um, but, but uh, yeah, the rest of it. Um, and I do think Jordan Peterson, like, may have said that once or twice, then realized he what he was doing and changed it. I think he started saying neo-Marxists mm-hmm. instead, which is different. Um, yeah, I mean, Peterson is and and there's another fellow who he really leans on. who wrote a book about postmodernism and his connection to Marxism whose name is escaping me, but they're wrong in uh, the, the way they analyze post-structuralism and the way they look at Marxism. But what they're not wrong about is that culturally for a while, people who might've earlier been calling themselves Marxists might've instead talked about Foucault or they might've instead talked about Derrida Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and as if they, these things had the same, revolutionary potential um as as marxist thought did um yeah. i think that's true enough um <clears throat> but anyhow dude so to so anyway so i got let go right i mean it seemed like i was let go but then well let me let me just say you yeah. you know you were publishing stuff that was interesting to read as someone who was not you know in the debates between the post-structuralists and the neo-marxist and you know right and someone who i know nothing about marxist theory essentially um but the stuff was accessible. It was um, often tied to things that were happening online or on social media. And you also had a very quick turnaround. And maybe that's related yeah. to this bare bones thing. Whereas usually a book takes after the manuscript is turned in, it takes like nine months to a year in a traditional publisher before it comes out. You were talking about things that, you know, you read the book and it was something that like six months ago happened on Twitter um well that, that sort of thing yeah i don't think we ever wrote a book no one ever wrote a book about something that happened on twitter that i'm aware of but you're basically right um yeah i mean like okay kill all normies is a good example that book was a while and, and you know took a while to to write for her and it, we knew it was coming for a while but then trump got elected and we liked it oh we've got to get this book out right away and there was a downside to it it wasn't properly copy edited i actually noticed that yeah when <laughs> yeah. i first read it there were yeah some yeah copy editing errors <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah um but uh we rushed it through because we knew that it was going to hit and it did hit and it didn't i mean look the fact is it didn't matter that it wasn't copy edited properly it sold well it made an impact and people talked about it and thought about the issues that she was raising um uh, unfortunately the yeah something happened with kill all normies which is symptomatic of a larger problem, which I frankly am still trying to solve. But we can talk about that. Well, I mean, I'll just I'll just talk about it now. Um, that book criticized both. I mean, criticized the left, but it was really an expose on the alt right. But mm-hmm. it criticized the left. Um, it didn't. You know, you don't even have to bother really saying that the expose of the alt right is a criticism. It's you know, it was more than that. But the criticism of the of the left was look, you're it's. It, it's moralistic um it's smug it's dismissive it's you know uh it's focused on individuals rather than structures um and it just it's off-putting when you when it embraces certain kinds of online tactics certain kinds of 
moral shaming approaches to, especially to individuals. Um, so like that, basically it was, it did oppose cancel culture. Um, and in the process of opposing cancel culture, cancel culture, uh, Nagel pointed to a few of the reasons that someone might get canceled and made fun of those reasons. Like if you misgender someone by not using the proper pronouns, but not just that, like not using the proper pronouns of which there are 75 different versions based on, you know, some list on Tumblr. So that, mm-hmm. and so by pointing to um, that kind of ridiculous uh, uh, rule about uh, pronoun usage, Nagel opened up the, the space for people to attack her and cancel her based on her own supposed transphobia or a myriad of other mm-hmm. um, uh, 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 crimes. And the sad thing was, it, and there was enough heat on her, and she had uh, 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 the, whatever kind of personality it, that is required to, to not be able to tolerate uh, that. So that she, I think, I would say at this point, she is broken with the left, at least as far as I can tell. She, she's no longer um, associating with what I would call the left and is instead appearing on conservative of radio programs and... Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know if that means that her uh, ambitions for socialism have altered. I would say probably she would say they haven't, but she no longer operates as a part of the, at least the American left, as far as I can tell. And what that has done is confirmed everyone who disliked her book to begin with in their original estimation, mm-hmm. despite the fact that the, the criticisms were pretty much sound. and. Uh, and right, so it was like fact, she was a, she was a wolf in, wolf in sheep's clothing all along, sort of. Yeah, right, but thing. yeah, but I don't believe that's the case. I think it's more like we are shaped by not like she's not responsible or to, you, you made her do this or anything like that, but it's more like we're shaped by the moments that we're in. And if the if she was living in a moment where criticism and debate and multiple pers- and different perspectives were uh, possible to have on the left. She might not change her positions very much, but she would still be part of the left. She wouldn't be just relegated to right-wing spaces. Um, mm-hmm. But, it, you know, for careerist reasons, if you're going to criticize the left the way she wants to, you have to do it from the right, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for the most part. And so, yeah, um, and I, I, this is actually something that I was, again, another sort of side note, <laughs> I wanted to. I think I may have even posted this on the blogging heads comment form at some point, but you know, there's this whole sort of meta debate about cancel culture. Does it exist? As people say, you know, it's just, this is just, you know, um, sort of, you know, if you're canceled, you can come back, whatever. If you're canceled, it's actually good for you. If you're, or, you know, no one is ever actually canceled because, you know, Louis CK is still touring and et cetera, et cetera. And the thing that I thought was like, you know, cancel culture can be sort of like a you can lean into it and turn it into turn to your advantage but you have to be sort of a media figure have some sort of media platform if you're a normal person who gets caught up in something like this and gets quote-unquote canceled that's like that's almost always bad 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 for you but if you're like somewhat if you're you know you 
if you're some media figure, if you're a writer, if you have a podcast or you're a content creator, that's we're calling it these days. Right, right. And then you do you tr- transgress in some way. People get mad at you, and then you like t- make a big deal out of it. Then you have suddenly ten thousand people who want to subscribe to your newsletter or something like that. Yeah, and, but it's and- not the same people, right? That's the thing. Like for someone who's on the left, <clears throat> the choice when you get canceled is either to lean into it and go to the right and find that new audience who will love you for being hated by the left exactly, or try to survive it and navigate it to, to hold on to the, the left audience that wouldn't cancel you. And maybe, you know, uh, you know, put forward a, the, this, uh, an idea that it's not a great idea to cancel people. I mean, I have been canceled recently. I mean, uh, <laughs> apart from being let go, like that was not the same thing. Uh-huh. I, I, maybe I wasn't canceled. Maybe I was just ratioed. I'm not sure what the difference <laughs> is. Um, but I, I was ratioed because I tweeted in defense of Dave Chappelle's comedy special. Um, and that I got like days and days of. of yeah. And then that's another thing. I don't want to. We don't want to talk about it. that. We're not yeah. talking about that. But that shows how, you know, the dynamic such that. Like people are still talking about Dave Chappelle's comedy special months after it aired because of the controversial aspects of it. If you're someone like Dave Chappelle being talked about is ultimately positive or negative. It's sort of like the Trump phenomenon. You know, Trump just wanted to be in the news, positive or negative, just get his name on the streets. Yeah, well, that sort of thing. It ultimately helps Dave Chappelle because people are just like, oh, Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle. And look, I tell you what, I that's exactly right. And that's why I talked about Dave Chappelle. Because we have a book called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns. And I thought, oh, they're trying to cancel Dave Chappelle. I should promote Canceling Comedians While the World <laughs> right. Burns uh, in this mix and see if we can sell some copies that way. And I tweeted and it didn't really work at first at all. So then I tweeted again and that just made and it never it did not help. It did not help uh, canceling comedians for me to get involved and get a race showing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it I, I don't know. Like if if Chappelle had turned around and embraced me, right? If I got a little <laughs> love from Chappelle, then but he didn't seem to even notice I was there. He didn't even notice me. And so, well, yeah. I what know. can you do? I mean, that's yeah, that's the problem. There's you know, I'm gonna go to uh, his house. That's what I'm gonna do. <laughs> no, yeah, it's uh, it's just it is a strange phenomenon where I don't know. You just like if. The the people, yeah, everyone seems to, uh, everyone who wants to cancel someone seems not to realize how it ultimately helps them. And maybe the Chappelle thing will be some sort of turning point because I'm sure, you know, the, the, pe- the people who worked at Netflix who, like, protested and, like, walked out or something, it was just more attention. This is an attention economy. Like, it's just more attention mm-hmm. for Dave Chappelle. People are saying the words Dave Chappelle. It's, like, it's ultimately good for Dave Chappelle's bottom line. Right. Like, whereas, it, like, the the thing that kills people in the attention economy is not paying attention to them, but just moving on to the next thing, because there's always some other thing. Just move, move on to the next comedy special and right. promote that one or something. It, 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 just, like, getting so exercised about these culture war or things related to speech. Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's, it just seems so obvious that it's backfiring now. Yeah, it's called the Streisand effect. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah then and, you, point, you point something out, and, but, no and I, I feel like if people didn't recognize how it backfired when it came to Jordan Peterson, they're not going to ever recognize it. 
It's like, <laughs> you know, Jordan Peterson is even a more profound case because he was not known at all until. Yeah. Know. Well, but like, but also like Jordan Peterson has like a political program. Like Dave Chappelle is an entertainer who, ju- who just talks about politics and cultural issues in his latest stand up in a way that offended some people. I guess I haven't seen it. I don't want right. to. No, 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 I, I know. But I'm just saying like, <laughs> but I mean, it's it, 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 so he, you know, Jordan yeah, but Peterson Dave Chappelle has, is like was famous already. Yeah, he's yeah, yeah. very, very funny. And it wasn't just the fact that he was canceled that put him into the spotlight. That just was one part of a marketing strategy for him, right? He had uh, another part of his marketing strategy was he's in a car with uh, driving down the road and Morgan Friedman is, is narrating his thoughts, apparently. But then it turns out, no, Morgan Friedman is sitting next to him in the car. And as he gets to the destination, Dave Chappelle t- turns. Oh, okay. Morgan, Morgan Friedman. Well, okay, so, yeah. shut, shut up, man. okay marketing strategy that's perfect and 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 it's almost like well these people should read read their marks like they they you know they should like sort of see do like a who benefits follow the money sort of thing for Mm -hmm. this stuff and just see that intentionally i don't know if Chappelle was consciously like if i make jokes about trans women that you know that's going to get a lot of attention and make me more prominent than i was a year ago i don't know if he thought that but like that's how it Ended up. Oh, so I, think, it's I think it's a, a conscious, cynical strategy, or it just that's the way it has worked out. It just seems like, yeah, this is. I think what he thought was if I oppose cancel culture, you know, something like if I oppose the, can- the way these people are coming after comedians, if I, if I oppose the, the crowd of, of, uh, of the angry mob of Twitter uh, people, then that will get me popular more than make offensive jokes about trans people. That was just one way to do that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Obviously think, he's, I he's a, a smart candy guy. So you're probably right that he yeah, could yeah. sort of see how this would play out. And yeah, I, something. And I'd also bet he feels really not very happy with those people who say mean things about him online, you know? Oh, so, sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. But so it's um, a win-win. Yeah. yeah, for <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and maybe it's even a win-win for the people who oppose him in the sense that they get attention for their thing, whatever it is. And so nothing actually changes except, you know, the the person who has the anti-Dave Chappelle newsletter podcast, whatever, like they get some attention for their thing also. And yeah, right. No, yeah, no. It just rolls on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. This is a one of the things about our phony politics online is that it's a great way for nothing to change. Uh, so, yeah, um, that's well put. Um, so, but... Let me talk a little bit about my own personal drama. Yes. <laughs> enough, so, enough Dave Chappelle. Yeah. Um, uh, so, yeah. So what happened was eventually the people who had originally founded Zero Books uh, were able to convince, or Watkins Media, or Watkins Publishing, I mean, was able to convince John Hunt to go ahead and sell his company. He had actually already sold 29% of it to Watkins a few years ago. So I knew that this was going to happen eventually, probably. Mm-hmm. And when the first time I, I heard about it probably happening, I mentioned to John Hunt that I, if we ever, the first of all, if that ever happened, I would not be able to stay, that they would get rid of me immediately uh, because um, they had made it clear that they didn't want anyone to run zero books in their absence. And the first person that they, that John Hunt tried to hire was convinced to quit after two days by people in his social milieu applying pressure in various ways. I don't know what they did. I don't know if they threatened his cat. 
or what they did, but they, <laughs> but but I, I'm making that up completely. But, Wait, they, but they wanted they wanted the the imprint to essentially fold. Someone has yeah. to, you know, yeah. Someone yeah, they has wanted to, work to there. They had they wanted it to fail, and maybe so they could buy it up. Okay, but they okay, but they wanted it to not work, not not to function without them. By the way, at this moment, I understand the sentiment. So, um, <laughs> being on the other side of this now, uh, right. so when I got hired there. I was, you know, I was an American. I didn't know any of the people who had originally founded it. I, I was someone who had a, had a book proposal accepted. That's really my only end there. And yeah. I, I knew another author there and had interviewed him on my podcast. And he recommended me for the job. And I got hired as their second choice. Um, and when I took over, they were not happy with me. And they continued not to be happy with me the entire time I ran the imprint. And I would say when we had successes, that made them upset even more upset. So um, I knew that I would be uh, ejected when, when they bought the company, that they weren't going to keep me on and let me run the, uh, the imprint anymore. So then, and I, so I said to John Hunt at that moment, look, I, I've done, I've created a YouTube channel, a podcast and Patreon. If we part ways, the Patreon that's now going to pay my salary and some of the other people in marketing, um, what I, I'm going to just take that with me in the YouTube with me. If we go, because I built that up and, and I'd like to get a contract stating that. And he said, oh, yeah, no problem. You built it up. You made it. It's, I wouldn't have a problem with you taking it. And mm-hmm. Dominic. Wait, okay, said, so just to clarify, are you talking to John Hunt, the human or John Hunt? John Hunt, the person. Company. Yeah, it's the same okay. thing. But yes, John Hunt, the person I was visiting okay. in London. It's one, one of the two times I ever met him. And, and Dominic at that moment said, oh, well, I agree, you know, in principle, but we would have to protect the company. That's the guy who was actually managing the company at that point. John Hunt was sort of ha- quasi-retired. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, well, this is good. Um, and thought, well, maybe eventually I'll get a contract, and I would bet they're going to say in the contract something like, if you go, if you go your own way, we're going to demand 25% of all revenue or you know, something like, you know, say, get some cut of whatever I did mm-hmm. with, with these things in the future, um, which I might have been willing to, you know, we would negotiate and I would sign something like that. Or if they just paid me a whole bunch of money up front, and probably not nearly as much as, you know, it would have been worth, I would have probably signed all every, you know, signed it all over to them. But none of that happened. But then when they sold uh, Zero Books, they sold the YouTube channel and the Patreon with it. And, and so these, I was, these, were all, these were all branded as Zero Books. Yeah, they're all branded as Zero Books, which does okay. add a complication to it. Like if, I realized later. Um, so yeah, it was like the Zero Books YouTube channel, Inside Zero Books, the Patreon, um, and Zero Squared, the Zero Books podcast. But they let me keep Zero Squared because it had was on the same feed as Diet Soap, which was my original podcast. And, you know, so they didn't con- contest that. And at this point, I should make this statement. I have no legal claim to any of these things. I've relinquished them all. They're, they are now... Owned wholly by Watkins Publishing, so I am not making any legal claims to them. I want to <laughs> like I want to make that. You should like put that on the front and like put a big sticker on this that says that Doug does not make any legal claims. Okay, um, <laughs> yes, yeah, so, as long as we're saying that sort of stuff, you know, I, I am like I said an outsider to this, and I'm, we're getting one side of the story, obviously, and um, it, and so you know, if if someone from the other side wants to come on and present the their side of things i'd be happy to have that on also but uh, i don't know, think not... you're getting once i mean i know it's my side but i i think i'm actually like for instance i will tell you like 
their big claim would be, well, just because I use the brand, I built the reputation of the YouTube channel and my own reputation on their brand. And that gave them some claim. And, you know, I don't know how that would have worked out. That's one of the reasons why I have relinquished all rights to the YouTube channel and the, mm-hmm. and the Patreon, because I didn't really know how that would. I mean, I could imagine arguing the other side of that and that there's evidence for the other side, but that's one of those ambiguous questions in in law. Like, you know, what's the right of the creator, the uncontracted freelancer as against the right of the brand that he was using. Yeah. And actually, and and, and then also because this is in the UK, it may be the the laws there are a little different. Well, not that different in the U S okay. But also it reminds me somewhat of like sort of the um, early days of like Marvel comics where, you know, the, the, these um, artists created, you know, Spider-Man and Fantastic Four and so forth. And they were sort of like work for hire kind of people. And, and you know, these geniuses, Jack Kirby, Stanley, Steve Ditko in, in the early 60s, they created all these characters that are now worth, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars in intellectual property. But because right. like they, you know, and then some, and there have been lawsuits from their like, yeah, but, heirs but, and stuff. Right. But the difference probably is they really did work for hire I mean, they had contracts. I bet you they had contracts. I bet you there was some agreement about the Yeah, there probably property. there probably was, and they were probably yeah. they were probably exploitative contracts. You know, right, right, right. Screwing but over these. The difference here was no contract at all. Like okay. you know, like so, but without a contract, without a work for hire contract, in general across Europe and the United States and the UK, the creator just owns the rights. It's not even a question. Except in this case, it wasn't just that I was creating something it was like i was creating something and branding it as something you know at the same time and like i thought of myself as creating content to promote the brand and the books but i think they would say having founded the the brand that i use the brand to promote myself and books Mm -hmm. so um in any case so that was that that was the uh the dispute that was what the dispute came down to was and i guess they would claim i wasn't let go because i was only a freelancer so they couldn't even they didn't have to let me go um and also maybe they would have hired me on to do something else rather than publish being the publishing manager i kind of doubt that but it's possible they might have offered me some small position somewhere mm-hmm. but it wouldn't have been it wouldn't have been at the level where i was making a living which is i was one of the few people who actually made enough to make a living from this i mean almost everyone else who's a contractor was making at best a part-time living mm-hmm. working for john hunt and i i made my salary that from from john hunt um so yeah so that's that's the dispute that's what happened but the interesting thing is since that's happened it has been cast in by some people as a um a, an opportunity for zero books to move away from the anti-woke, suspicious, possibly crypto-fascist even, zero books of my time and back (laughs) to the purity of, I don't know, King's College London and and I'm being bitter, I'm being petty. Okay. Uh Uh, It's funny funny to me that like, there probably are, you know, there's some group of socialists or Marxists or something who see some other group of Marxists as crypto-fascists instead of like the obvious fascists that like some of them were like marching through Washington DC <laughs> like a memorial over the weekend you know wearing matching outfits and white masks and carrying American flags like those are the real fascists like we're, we have them now they're no longer crypto maybe 20 years ago <laughs> the fascists were crypto they're out there now 
Um, right. And, fly, and literally <laughs> waving flags proudly. Um, right, 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 right. I know, I know. Um, yeah, no. Uh, and I don't know, like, it, it, it's unclear to me. I mean, I know no one at Repeater or the new Zero Books has directly accused me of being crypto fascist. That's <laughs> down the line. But so, you see um, that sort of, yeah, that sort of, you know, the accusation. Like, but look, look right online. now I'm wearing a shirt that says United States on it. <laughs> like, I'm unabashedly embracing. Okay, well, let me ask. So when this story broke, I, I saw something about it on Twitter and I was like, oh, well, this is weird because just because I, just I know you a little bit. If I had you on the show and mm-hmm. I saw people like celebrating your downfall and I was like, wait, did I like, like what did I, what am I missing <laughs> with the story? So, so like, why, why were you, why were the people who were like dancing in the streets metaphorically I, I, on Twitter? I think it was because of my Chappelle, I think it's my Chappelle tweet. It was okay. like the timing so close to the Chappelle tweet and also Angela Nagel. Um, and also, like, I had Jesse Single on, and <laughs> okay, I've had, I mean, I've had Jesse Single on, so yeah, um, I know. I, I know. Just, no one is, uh, yeah, I don't care enough about me to, to celebrate or mourn, <laughs> yeah, whatever it happens yeah. to be, but um, right, right, okay, so yeah, yeah but so, I would say also, like, the, the, the people on Twitter have it's been mixed, right? The people on Twitter has been mixed. There's some people who are defending me and 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 not happy that I'm gone, and some people who are happy, but like, on the YouTube channel and on the Patreon that that have now been turned over. It's been pretty uniform that people are not happy with, mm-hmm. with the the me being gone. And and I want to tell all of those people who are unhappy that the new Patreon is patreon.com slash diet soap, D-I-E-T-S-O-A-P, and look for Doug Lane on YouTube because there's a new YouTube channel as well. Okay. Um, and links to those things will be below. Um if people yeah. want to uh, continue <laughs> supporting you in your new efforts yeah we're um, going to be publishing books as well we've got six books lined up for 2022 can you believe it's that far down the line i mean 2022 my god that's the future but yeah <laughs> we're going to be publishing um and uh we got todd mcgowan is our, our first author on the, uh about a, a book called enjoying it left and left and right um todd mcgowan is like a hegelian type who's sort of aligned with uh Zizek. So it's sort of a, a fun Hegelian instead of like a uh, type of Hegelian that will, will make you think about the in itself and the for itself. and The, <laughs> <you know. laughs> the fun Hegelians. Is that a group? Is that the young Hegelians, the fun Hegelians? The, the fun Hegelians. Yeah, they that, came out. Sure they used that brand. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, the, um, okay, so yeah, let's, let's talk about the new efforts and are, what are you, is what's going to be different than your reign at Zero Books? How do you, are you using, are going to use the same sort of bare bones model that well i mean enables now or kind of i mean we're not we're not going to automate everything we're going to so the diff one big, big difference is we're not taking slush for the first two years we're not going to explain taking, what that means for people who don't, who don't know we're, we're not going to take unsolicited submissions with if you if you worked at zero books or you want to um you reach out to me because you're an author and you kind of know me you can do that i mean look that's how this publishing game works unfortunately um but it, we're not going to take um People we don't know and look at their manuscripts for two years. Okay, and so, so have, slot, the slush pile is unsolicited manuscripts. That's the publishing right, industry right, term. Yeah. Right, right. And so, which maybe tells you something about how the publishing industry views, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, right. Authors who don't have agents or something like that, but um, right, yeah. right. Authors who don't already have a track record uh, end up in the slush, um, unless they know people who know people. In which case, maybe they uh, skip it. Um, 
uh, look, I was a science fiction writer and am a science fiction writer, and I was in the slush pile with short fiction for years and years and years, and I know how important slush pile is actually for people. So one of the things we're going to do instead for the first two years is we're going to run a Substack journal, and we're going to take essays, and we'll take slush only, you know, only for the most part, unsolicited manus- uh, manuscripts there. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we're going to have a team of people who are just writers, regular writers for the journal to make sure we can keep content you know, the content mill going, but we're going to take unsolicited manuscripts for the journal essays of two to like one to 4,000 words. And then um, if you get published there, that would be step one on being possibly published as an author for the company later on. Mm-hmm. That's our, that's how we're going to vet people who are uh, unknown to us. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's a very different approach than what was going on at John Hub Publishing structurally but i'm going to try to publish the same kinds of books especially the kinds of books that did well i mean like i'm at john hunt there were, the model was sort of publish a lot and see what sticks mm-hmm. and and we're going to publish fewer books uh, at the most half as many as we published at john hunt um at the first time out even less than that six titles the first year uh with the aim of having each one sort of hit like a big Ben Burgess book would like, or like an Angela Nagel book would, I mean, that's a tall order, but that's what we're going to aim at is to have all these books come in and intervene in, in, uh, in the left. I mean, I think of it as intervening in the left. And by the way, I consider you to be within the realm of the left, <laughs> <laughs> not, not really a socialist, obviously. No, yeah, I mean, it's funny. Yeah, ultimately needing up. re-education, you know, after the revolution. <laughs> Yeah, I'll I'll definitely be sent to the camps uh, after the revolution, but maybe uh, yeah. They we don't do call them new... camps; it's just their re-education centers. <laughs> so that the, that word "camps" bad, bad connotation. Yeah, I maybe I mean yeah. This often comes up because my uh, you know what, what are my politics, especially like lefties are like you know, how how do I not get it? You know how have I not seen the light? Sort of thing. I don't know. I just like. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm 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 interested. I'm a friend of the left, like or at least a friend of of a lot of lefties, and. Um, you know, think they're interesting people, but I just don't buy into the whole thing. But you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to. What would you say your politics are like? Center liberal? Yeah, I, I've I've described myself as an Obama 08 Democrat. That was the last politician I was excited about. Obviously, disappointed various people in various ways. But mm. you know, and I've said this before on the podcast that in the the movie um, Get Out, the the father says I would have voted for Obama a third time, and then it's revealed that he's like this evil. You know, he's this evil monster who's uh, stealing the bodies of black people. But like, <laughs> I, I, I would have voted for Obama a third time, also very happily. Um, so, so there's that. Um, and yeah, but that's yeah. So yeah, even not even a centrist Democrat. I would say I would say I'm like a progressive Democrat or something. Right, okay, um, so if you're a progressive Democrat, that is, I think the you know where a lot of the even socialist left actually ends up. Mm-hmm. You know, like the, our our actual politics end up being, oh, I'm going to vote for Dennis Kucinich. You know, <laughs> not not to date myself too much there with that reference, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah. Because, yeah. You, you know, the true, the people who truly want to upend the system, you know, are. They still have to go to the polls. Yeah. I mean, they don't not vote. I mean, some of them don't vote, but, uh, you know, if you talk about like where energy ends up like the you know like the 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 socialists are in the dsa right Mm -hmm. these days but the dsa is just a a progressive you know influence like a a pressure group on the democrats 
to move them towards what your kind of politics. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, because they're not know. truly they're not arguing for true for a revolution. No, no, it's just because they're not creating system. their own. It's not not creating their own party even. Like the mm-hmm. Green parties are are kind of a pressure group, but they're less obviously so. But like. You know, but yeah. in the case well, of yeah, DSA, I mean, that in the they, two-party system, any you know, any minor party has no, has almost no chance nationally. Right, um, right, yeah. So it makes, so it makes if, sense. So to work, yeah, try but to, I mean, you know, that's the Tea Party strategy: work, you know, work to like radicalize the party right. from within or like semi-within. Right. But so my aim at, at now it's called Diet Soap Media, and I, I can tell you why it's called that if you'd like. Sure. Yeah, what is to, that, that? I was struck by that name. What, what does that come from? <laughs> okay, I started a zine in 1992 called Diet Soap, and you know, it, when I was 21 years old and uh, drunk on my stoop with my friend, <laughs> trying to come up with a name for the zine, I did not think I would be uh, burdened by it at the age of 50 as I tried to start a real <laughs> publishing company. Um, but somehow or another, through the process of elimination, that was the, the name that stuck. It was the name of my podcast as well as I started out. And Diet Soap, when I was 21, what I thought it meant was, that's a commodity nobody needs. And that's how it is in capitalism. No one needs it. <laughs> no. <laughs> okay. That was, I was 21, you know, and, uh-huh. and, and, and uh, it, that was not exactly right. You know, the people do need capitalism because it's a system of, production and and distribution and you know bad as it is it does provide needs in a roundabout way but um nonetheless that was the idea it's like a commodity nobody needs uh and the other part of that story is the first issue of diet soap had a picture of the bullet that killed kennedy on the cover the magic bullet and it was because i wanted my zine to do what that bullet did which is this miracle where it went all over the place everywhere (laughs) (laughs) okay it yeah. seems like a young and, man's metaphor also. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 So, uh, yeah, that's Diet Soap. <laughs> okay, cool. And, and yeah, so that's, okay, Diet Soap is the new imprint and the new, the Patreon is Diet Soap. And yeah. Is and, other, the, and, the, and the YouTube channel is Douglas Lane, but it's also Diet Soap Media with Douglas Lane. Um, and uh, yeah, and we're going to be publishing books and we're going to have that journal that, through Substack that I mentioned and we're doing podcasts and YouTube videos and we are hoping to even make a documentary film based on RU Sirius's book The Freaks in the Machine which may be coming out from Zero Books um, I don't know there's, a, there's some dispute there but I can't go into that but anyway we started working on the documentary with him right before I left Zero Books and uh, <clears throat> So, yeah, I mean, we have a lot of plans and it means that I need to remember to stand up from this chair and or else I'll get deep vein thrombosis or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, we, we're going to be doing a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, OK, so I, I wish you good luck um, it, because you know, I've, I've enjoyed the, the stuff you've worked on and helped put out. I do want to I mean, this raises an interesting question about like branding and how in this world of content creators how you should brand yourself and i'm thinking like so when ezra klein ezra klein had um uh at when he was at the washington post it, he, there was something it was just like a wonk blog that's what it's called and then he left and wonk blog kept going even though he like started wonk blog and maybe originally wonk blog was just him essentially working on it and then when he went to vox he started the ezra klein show and 
obviously he left Vox and moved to the Times, and you know they couldn't. <laughs> Vox couldn't take over the Ezra Klein show and say, "This is the Ezra Klein show without Ezra Klein," and that now we have some other person hosting it. Um, and so he can do. So the Ezra Klein show continues now as a New York Times podcast. And obviously, he's like a superstar, so he can basically do whatever he wants. But mm-hmm. it is something you know I've thought about, especially as like I like I'm now on my own YouTube channel. I was thinking, should I? Um, how should I brand that? I, 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 because should I call it the Arya Cohen Way channel? Because that's truly something that no one else is could take away from you or whatever want. So, um, or should I would I, call it culturally determined with Arya Cohen Wade. Yeah. So I ended up just calling it culturally determined, but, um, it is, it, it is inter- an interesting sort of puzzle of how you position yourself. And so you became highly identified with the zero books brand. Um, mm-hmm. and then, but they were able to, kick you out and they're, they keep zero books. You of course have your name. You have the, the, this old name that from your past that you're bringing up, but it is sort of like, yeah. And, and Vox itself, Vox, like all the people who originally founded Vox, like are gone for Vox, but it still continues on as Vox. I don't know. It's, it's, it's like a puzzle when you're trying to think about these things. And so like also on right. hands, there's the Glenn show with Glenn Larry. Of course, no one else can host the Glenn show. And there's the right show with Bob, Wright. No one else is going to host that one. Um, but you can. And then there's like, a Bob and Mickey show. Yes. Then, well, they actually call that the Pear Room, and uh, which I thought was sort of a mistake because I, the name I thought. Oh, by the way, it- you guys might want to sue me because I call the patron only content for my show the Parrot Room as well. Right. Because Bob said he wanted people to use the word Parrot Room. <laughs> okay, well, whenever they did a patron. So if, if if it comes to be known that your Patreon bonus is the Parrot Room, I guess that's sort of a that'll help. They'll end up in Bob's obituary or something, but I thought they should call it Bob and Mickey Sell Out. And that would, so that would be <laughs> branded with their name. And, um, but they didn't go with that. And I don't even know if I actually suggest that. Maybe that was just a thought I had. But it is, you know, it's interesting to think about these things as, as more and more of us are sort of content creators in some respect or other and how you brand can we, yourself. Can, can we talk about what's going on at Blogging Heads a little bit? I mean, I don't need oh, all sure. the inside details, but, but I'm, I'm a fan of Blogging Heads. Like, when it comes to getting a perspective on the news and uh, political analysis from what I will call the reality oriented community <laughs> rather than the socialist one. Mm-hmm. And by the way, like I consider myself to be like George Bush and then well, people can cut that out and put that out. out <laughs> <laughs> in so much as I'm not part of the reality based community, I, I think we can act to change the foundation of society. We can act to change reality. But if you're, um, you know, that that the working class people have the power to change the world. But if you're not looking to change the world fundamentally and you just want to know kind of what's going on, like I think blogging heads is a really interesting approach to doing political analysis and opinion. And the history of it is amazing. It's like <clears throat> there was a show with uh, Glenn Greenwald debating some New York Times uh, right wing journalist whose name I should know right off the David Brooks, I think it was or someone. Uh, I think it would have been David Brooks, but it's very yeah, very possible that Glenn was set up with Eli Lake or someone like that back in the day. Right. Um, yeah, it's and, sort of. I mean, I've I've done it. I did an episode with Bob where it sort of reminisced about the early days, but um, it was amazing what you guys were pulling off. You had real established insider New York and uh, and global journalists coming through blogging heads, right? And and because yeah. it was the only platform like it, and and of course Bob comes out of New Republic very highly pedigreed professional background. And um, so it was a great little, it was a great model, but it seems like now um, 
YouTube has come along and made blogging heads into something else. And like the funding model is different as Patreon. It's like everyone else. You're like everybody else. Yeah. YouTube, your YouTubers, your Patreon. It's maybe making good money. I don't know. But the point is like it was its own platform and thing. And I guess right. the platform and still exists. Different, yeah, there's so, I mean, there were sort of different levels of it. So originally it was just Bob and Mickey, and then they started bringing other people on um to talk to either Bob or Mickey, and then they started having pairing up people to talk to each other, and this was all when video on the web was very early and it was very novel to see someone whose um, blog you were reading to see their face on video. You guys use like a telegraph wire, right? And, and well, like yeah, old, was, TV, I mean, old was, black and white TV set. This was, this was before broadband was even common. So what people, what people would do was they would call each other on the phone. And that's why some right. of the old ones, like you see John McWhorter holding like a cord, you know, a phone with a cord to his ear and they would tape themselves either using a webcam or, or possibly even a, a video recorder with that would like produce a right. physical thing and then right. they would either upload it or possibly even send it in the mail uh to a central location where it would be knitted together so this is you know digitally is, digitally uh up you know transferred yes and, and so and, it was a laborious process that anticipated what would become sort of a standard model but the technology wasn't there to do it so bob saw like he sort of saw the future and and helped sort of go towards that using the, the limited technology that was available in 2005 but right. but at the same time like you know and when did you start there's a reason you, well youtube also started in 2005 i think oh uh, they were right, at the right, same time yeah. but you know you uh it ended up that like obviously youtube is a global behemoth and plug is still a niche thing and because plug wasn't an open platform it was you right. know it was a piece of it was content um and Bob right. wanted continued to exercise wanted to exercise editorial vision like a magazine, which is the world he came from, and um, so it didn't become so the you know the platforms ended up taking over the globe instead of the uh, I com- don't the think the themselves. email a VHS kit set to my friend in Albuquerque and he'll edit it for you is whatever have taken over the world, but right. <laughs> but, uh, but it also snowman. he also anticipated podcasts in a way yeah. like yeah. because the the initial thing and still it, it it always sort of was a podcast even and it was available as audio only very early on even before podcast was a widely known term and so that was another thing that bob anticipated that people would just want to listen in on writers journalists academics interesting people having long-form conversations and if i'm my critique of how this all ended is sort of or how this all ended up was like it could have um by by continuing to keep the video aspect going that sort of added especially sort of in the mid period, like, you know, 2009 to 2015 or so, it added all this extra work that was required on the back end because like it, it was still like there was, Skype and Zoom and so forth weren't available. And so it was still sort of this laborious process to produce these videos that were not themselves so inherently interesting that that most people would want to just t- watch the video. It always was essentially an audio medium, except <laughs> people talking to each other who are maybe not the sort of people who would appear on mainstream television and like you and me perhaps. And so are perhaps not so inherently either physically attractive or charismatic that, Hey, now speak for yourself that the average, (laughs) that, you know, people want to, the average person wants to sit and watch it for half an hour, an hour or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it always sort of was a pot, an audio podcast with a visual element. And, um, and it's still sort of in that in between this you know liminal right okay so podcast in, in youtube world whereas you the people who are like 
YouTube only things, they do a lot of stuff where it's like, they're like, hey, what's up, YouTubers? Blah, 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 blah. You know, they talk in a specific <laughs> way. And like the screenshot is always some guy like, you know, like that. Like, like that. So Bob was never interested in any of that sort of stuff either. And you know, right. like, didn't super care about just getting as many hits as possible. R- right. So I, I that the company became I do a nonprofit. That. And I, I do that other thing. That, I mean, I even have thumbnails of me making that face. But <laughs> right. <laughs> right. you got to play the but, game. Yeah. Yeah. Right. But uh, but those are mostly for video essays, not hey, YouTubers, not the vlog. <clears throat> and then I use I do a kind of a blogging head style podcast, but I started out as a podcaster on audio only. And then over time around 2017, really made it like a blogging heads audio podcast, but it was because the technology was there for me to use right easily. And, it and, was, the, and it the other was, thing, the other thing that YouTube enables is things can go viral on YouTube, whereas a po- it's more difficult for a podcast to go viral because right. Um, well, for various reasons, but it can't, it just can't. I mean, it can go, I, can't, I guess it could, if someone used some other medium like Twitter, it relies, it go viral. The, the podcasts that go viral usually have, you know, like, like serial would be the first podcast that went super broke to the mainstream while serial was coming from this American life, which is a well-established radio brand and mm-hmm. had like public radio people working on it. So it was a highly polished product. And then, yeah, I th- honestly, I think that if you, aside from like the things that are that the Apple iTunes or Apple podcast app recommends like word of mouth is probably the way that most people hear about podcasts. So it, it has like right. a very old fashioned aspect to it. And so right. actually I might as well mention this here. I don't, so the only people who are still watching and listening to this are the hardcore fans, I assume, but I, I'm going to be transitioning entirely off the platform. <laughs> That'd be the euphemistic way to say it um, within the next couple months. And I'm because I, need to actually start earning some money from this and have a Patreon. And I think the way that makes the most sense to do it would be to eliminate the video entirely. And then um, the editing could be a lot simpler or something I could do myself easily. So I'm having to pay someone. And so I'm trying to figure out how to. Are you sure about that? Because I know I'm trying to think whether it, that would make sense or, or not, because I really do see this as an audio podcast where you happen to be able to see the faces of the people. And Unless I'm wrong, I'm not such a compelling screen presence that people just absolutely have to see no, my okay. lovely face. Right, but, but it doesn't but, cost you anything to stay on YouTube. Right, so I could stay on YouTube without the video, essentially. No, 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 no. You could go, look, here's what I do. Let me tell you what I do. And, okay. And, okay, I do StreamYard. I make a StreamYard video. That goes right to YouTube. I save it mm-hmm. as a recorded stream, so it's unlisted on YouTube. Then I download it, and I put a Inter- uh, uh, already made a little video file at the start saying, hi, this is a podcast. This is a show. And then sometimes I don't, I, I just find out where I want it to end. I don't even really edit the stream, depending on whether or not I remember, like maybe I sneezed or someone mm-hmm. left the room or something. It might <laughs> clip that out. But um, if I remember to, but then I just put the stream up Upload it to YouTube with a with a thing at the beginning and at the end. Then I take that video file, the MP4, make it into an MP3 file, and drop that into my RSS feed. Mm-hmm. So now look, when I started podcasting, and maybe I shouldn't tell people all that because now they're going to be that's what I'm paying for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, when I started podcasting in 2009, I would record Skype calls and just the audio, and then I would spend a couple of days editing. I would edit uh, all the ums and ahs. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Really, 
very clean uh, podcast with even like a little audio collage in the middle or something to illustrate a point and mm-hmm. these little polished like radio programs and moving to YouTube and doing streams that turn into the podcast has completely eliminated that aspect of it. But, but it has also given me time to work on video collages to draw people in. And I think the conversation, like this conversation we've had right now, do you think it needs to be edited? What, what would we need to cut out? Yeah, probably not. And, you know, I guess the people listening at home have their own opinions. Yeah, we need to cut cut out everything from the first moment until right now. But other than that. Yeah, I mean, essentially, I need to think about, and we're getting really into the weeds here. I need to think about, do I want it to be more like a loose, flowing sort of thing, which is always what it has been? Or should I try to make it more like, quote unquote, professional, like something you would hear if, like, you know, Vox or Slate or something produced a podcast with music and it would be shorter, there would be editing. I'm still sort of deciding all that. But but people, I mean, I'm very open to suggestion on this. And so if people in the comments have any opinion. Do you like what do you get out of the video when, I, you know, I'm not doing either um, graphics, video collages or the, you know, uh, crazy faces kind of thing that, that is popular on YouTube? Uh, would you be fine with an audio owning product with the video? Could you, the video product be the Patreon bonus? Like that's yeah, one yeah. option. I mean, the other thing is, I think there still are people who don't who I would want to get on as guests who don't want to show their face. Um, oh. And th- that would make that easier. Uh, like if I want to talk to some strange Twitter type person who is anonymous, you know, mm-hmm. now, obviously you can do that just by putting their image up or something, but it would just be simpler um, without that entirely. Yeah. So sound off in the comments, literally, or mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I am eager for people's opinion on that. Uh, yeah. And at some point <laughs> there's going to be uh culture determined will be an independent operation with some sort of, Patreon slash advertising model, still figuring that out, but I think it's going to happen within a couple months. Um, yeah. So, yeah. All right. So smash well, that I, subscribe button if you everyone, want to keep yeah. getting this content. Yeah, and, <laughs> and now you need to make that face again. Put that on the cover of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the yeah, the, the soy boy or whatever face. Yeah, do the soy boy um, face. I think you do it all the time naturally, so you don't have to worry. Uh, so, uh, all right. Well, it's been fun i hope i hope that i didn't say anything during this that will get me to reignite a, a lawsuit but i don't think i did i don't think so either uh, but that yeah and that's i mean that is sort of another thing of like you know getting having the ability to cut things out not just not because you think it might get sued or something but right. that's obviously easier to do with audio than video um but yeah. yeah so I, so yeah I, i'm thinking about these things and uh this has been interesting for that aspect in addition to just the, sto- the unusual story of how this all came out okay so do you want to say once again the various places people could find sure you i want to say, and i also want to say that since i've left uh zero books the the patreon two-thirds of the people who are supporting uh me on the patreon have come over to my new patreon oh that's already great. yeah so it's uh patreon.com diet soap backslash diet soap d-i-e-t-s-o-a-p and um look for me on youtube it's douglas lane or if you type in diet soap media you'll find me as well um don't look for me on Twitter. Uh, you can, but there's someone impersonating me on Twitter. Sure. And <laughs> yeah, not so kindly. Um, I guess I'm not loved on Twitter. Uh, I don't know what to do about this exactly. Because you were like, running, the, you, ha- you were essentially running the Zero Books social media feed. Right. And, and, then, and now that's there. I mean, that's gone. That's not me anymore. Yeah. And so now someone has this Twitter feed called Douglas, Doug Lane at ZeroBooksPublishing.com is their Twitter handle. And um, 
and they say things like all the only girls fans uh, the, all the only fans girls i follow will eventually have sexy with me i know it and stuff like that so <clears throat> and i oh, and well, my thought I, when when i saw that i was like how does this person have access to my unconscious mind <laughs> <laughs> well i would i mean the the truest compliment is when your haters feel like they you know you're so you're living rent free in this person's head whoever this is and you know once, <laughs> right. once you have someone right. mocking you full time that means you've arrived <laughs> you know, on some level of success right. yeah, I, yeah. Would, I would love to have someone out there you know imitating me online if you want to do that we can work together you know yeah yeah we, you're gonna have to pay somebody to do it i have my guy doing it for free yeah we can instigate fights behind the scenes it would help both of us uh, it would be yeah. it would really be uh it would be a non-zero relationship um so <laughs> uh okay well anything else you want to say before we no not, we no that's up? it but i uh, maybe something off the record. I just want to ask you about blogging heads, but we'll, we'll okay. We we'll stop. stop we'll stop the recording, and uh, yeah, man, maybe this will be the sort of thing that, and someday the Patreon, no, know, no, you exclusive. <laughs> you should definitely do like two sessions with your guests and have a parrot room style. Yeah, something I that the, works. The, like when I named the second hour parrot room and said we're going to let our hair down and just talk and gossip and say stuff we wouldn't stay say in public. <laughs> like we got more patrons i thought so, having a bonus segment of some sort is another obvious sort of thing yeah. that would you know people would pay for the bonus segment um so that's something i'm certain also yes if, if you want that sort of thing say it in the comments okay yeah like subscribe every every week i tell my kid that uh my son like oh you know what friday you know what tomorrow is it's friday he's like what is tomorrow i said it's an old white guy day it's an old white guy day with Bob and Mickey. it's true um yeah okay well let's <laughs> Let's stop things there. Thank you, Dor- okay. Thank you, Doug. Thank you to all, all right, the right. listeners. And <laughs> yeah. we'll see you again next time. Yeah. Yeah.